0: Hi, this is Laura Huey, and you have tuned in to Sociology 4451, which is an advanced seminar in policing here at the University of Western Ontario. I am taping this at almost 11 o'clock at night because I think I've actually managed to tire out my dogs. Let's hope this works. But if not, you'll be hearing some barking, some chasing, and what have you in the background. Uh, Because my co hosts Lucy and Chewbacca are here. Oh, and they appear to be kind of trying to sleep. Fantastic. All right, so tonight's discussion is on policing, but focusing on the classics, the classic literature of policing. So we're going to cover off a whole bunch of different concepts, uh, some old research from back in the day. and what you're gonna discover is a lot of that material is still relevant, and of course, some of it is not. But it's still important to understand uh, where ideas come from when we talk about things like police culture, police roles, the, the and I'm using quotation marks here, the policeman's working personality, although, uh, you know, a little bit dated, just saying, can't forget, our police women Let's get cracking. Okay, so what do police do? What are the, I mean, yes, I get it. When I ask my students in class about this, you know, well, they arrest people, they help little old ladies across the street, Uh, they give you tickets. Well, actually, it's usually give you tickets, arrest people, and maybe help a little old lady across the street. Because again, most people's perceptions of policing are based on their firsthand experience or through media representations. So that means where do most people engage with the police? In the context of a traffic stop or some other type of situation which perhaps somebody's been a victim. So I hate to break it to, to you, if for those of you in policing, but generally when people see you, they're seeing you at what is not a great point in time for them. In terms of what the research, the classic research has had to say, I'm gonna talk about four specific roles that are found within the law enforcement literature. Let's go back to 1964 and the work of a fellow by the name of Michael Banton. Banton looked at policing and he saw the police role as being that of a law enforcer, not exclusively, but that is one of the primary roles. As law enforcers, police officers are tasked with processing cases through the criminal justice system. Duh. Uh, Their work primarily consists of arrests and arrest-related procedures, such as information taking, locating witnesses, filing or advising charges, testifying, and other activities that expedite criminal justice processing. Seems pretty straightforward, right? Well, there's another component to this. As law enforcers, one of the things that marks police as unique from say, other occupational groups in society, is not just that they enforce the law, but that they have the power of arrest and the ability to use lawful force, which is central to this role. And that comes out of Banton in 1964, but also out of the later work by a fellow by the name of Egon Bittner in 1971. Bittner defines the core of the police role as the ability to use coercion, to affect a lawful outcome, and that for Bittner is what makes police so different from, like I said, any other type of occupational group. Although, let's face it, I, I um, that's not that is not necessarily just unique to the police. We could also argue that military, correctional officers, and so on also have the abilities to use, to execute lawful force in pursuit of operational or legal objectives. So, but you know, this is 1971. And some people to this day would argue that that is indeed the core of policing and what makes police unique. Uh, I would disagree with that. And so would a lot of my colleagues. That said, the police do have this unique, relatively unique, but not completely uh, exclusive to the police role around the ability to detain people and to execute arrests. Okay, the second rule I want to talk about comes from our friend Egon Bittner, but he was writing in 1967. There's a classic piece of ethnographic research that was done in the 1960s by Bittner who, in it was called Peacekeeping on Skid Row. Essentially what Bittner did was he followed police officers around in Skid Row District and he observed what they spent most of their time actually doing. One of the things that I find really interesting about the emphasis on police as law enforcers is that it, it obscures the reality that much police work has absolutely nothing to do with enforcing the law and this is Bittner's point. He says most of what police officers do on the front lines is actually peacekeeping which is also often referred to as order maintenance. These are all the informal extra legal activities police engage in, in order to minimize disorder and reduce tensions that could lead to crimes or disturbances. Such activities include settling personal disputes and, or issuing warnings to those who are, or might be doing wrong. I saw this the other day. So one of the, um, One of the interesting side effects of the COVID quarantine is that uh, all of a sudden uh, I find myself in a desperate desire to leave the house frequently on walks with the dog. This is the we have the most walked dogs in the neighborhood, I believe. And as a consequence of that, I get to you know there's not much activity, so you get to see everything that's going on in on the street. And I happen to see police officers attending a call down the road. And it was clear that there had been an interpersonal dispute between, um, roommates and to do with unpaid rent at the end of the month. And then, you know, COVID and I don't, you know, I'm not working, yada, yada, yada. And so, uh, what happens is the dispute gets to a point where one party or the other calls the police to come and settle the dispute. And that's what I observed. This is, as I, I would suggest, as does Bittner, a good chunk of police work trying to prevent things from becoming criminal conduct. Um, Another example that I I give is uh, moving loitering people along. You see a bunch of kids hanging out by, you know, look look like they're up to no good, um, you know, might come up and ask a few questions and then they all sort of skedaddle, right? And um, I get it. Some people be like, oh, that's terrible. You know, you're moving kids along, but it really depends, this is context specific. Um, in some cases, moving people along who are loitering is actually a potentially a good thing because of why they're loitering. If they're loitering because they're hanging out, there's no other place to go, I get that. But, you know, we, let's face it, we do have issues, especially, you know, This is probably a terrible example now I think about, because with COVID, if you're loitering, for sure that's a bad thing. If there's a group of you loitering, that is definitely a bad thing. So this is probably a better example. Uh, There was a recent news article, I think it came out actually today or yesterday here in London, a group broke into a golf course and decided they were going to go golfing. They weren't necessarily loitering, they were definitely trespassing. But the, the police were called and attended and broke, broke them up. Um, they did not affect arrests. They just warned people that you're being really stupid and get and, and my word and get the hell out of here. And so, again, they're preventing things that could potentially go really, really wrong. Like all these people, all, I'm just going to say it, all these idiots getting COVID and then sneezing on me as I walk by with my dogs. All right. The third role that I want to talk about from the classic literature also comes from Bittner. I feel like Bittner gets in a, because he, he's, Bittner, classic. If you get an opportunity, read a ton of his work, uh, because a lot of what he asked to say really, you know, it really speaks to what was going on in policing back then, but also what continues to go on in policing today. The third role is social workers. I recognize that that is a term that police officers do not like and quite frankly I can understand why. But the reality is studies repeatedly show going, going back to the 1960s all the way through to like the work of somebody like uh, Tank Waddington in 1993 and up to the present. My own research uh, although that's not super present 2007 and since shows that police engage in a lot of activity that is neither law enforcement nor peacekeeping related, but is rather oriented towards helping individuals in need or at risk. For example, in my own research in Vancouver's Downtown Eastside, I know uh, I did interviews with police officers who talked to me about doing things like seeing a kid that was down in the Downtown Eastside who come from a community uh, in the interior of BC, the police officer recognizing if that kid stays too much longer in this in this area, they're gonna end up and typically, I mean, not uniquely girls, but typically in the downtown Eastside girls will end up either in the sex trade or the du- drug trade. And so police officers quietly buying kids bus tickets and putting them on buses to send them home as an example of a social work type activity. Uh, there's a lot of social work activities that police engage in that um, it's just for really good cops it's considered good policing and in fact one of my favorite stories from a former inspector in in d2 in vancouver which of course is the downtown east side strathcona area was uh, uh this inspector talking about how proud he was of his personnel is people in this district because they would go out and go out of their way to do things for the local community, recognizing that it was a community and uh, that oftentimes they could take proactive steps that might potentially help people, I'll give you an example, like calling around for homeless shelters, for beds in homeless shelters. Another one, this might seem controversial, but Bittner talks about this, is does Waddington arresting drunk individuals for their own good? Here's the thing. In, in the middle of winter in good chunks of Canada, I would, quite frankly, I like, would prefer to have another option than, than a uh, jail cell. However, better to be in a heated, observed space where you get access to food and the ability to sleep off your intoxication, because quite frankly, if you are intoxicated in public spaces in in many areas, you will be a potent. You are potentially a victim. You'll be. You could be rolled for your money. I've had homeless people uh, t- talk about. You know, in the UK, it's called rough sleeping. Talk about having been robbed, having been beaten, uh, having been. Um, The victim of harassment all sorts of types of issues for being in a public space Unprotected and and therefore vulnerable to predation and so police officers talk Have historically and today talk about arresting drunk Individuals for their own good and quite frankly preventing people from things like asphyxiating on their own vomit uh, from uh, You know just tons and there's tons of potential Issues. Quite frankly, again, nobody thinks that that's a great solution for this issue. I would like to see sober stations where people can be taken in it's a medical facility, but um, hey if anybody wants to actually talk about that, let's give me, you know just let's do it. give me a call. The fourth role is one that is very is not very often talked about. It goes it's the knowledge worker. And this goes back to the work of Richard Erickson and Kevin Haggerty in 1997 in a book called *Policing the Risk Society*. Uh, great book, tons of really good, um, tons of really good theorizing. Fantastic conceptual framework. Very, very, very long and boring. Sorry, Kevin, if you're listening to this, but. When they hit 500 pages like i don't care how devoted and dedicated somebody is this is done so it is a thick book i would say get it on kindle and skim okay what is a knowledge worker what uh what erickson and Haggerty talk about is the fact that in modern policing an increasing amount of work police officers do is actually about collecting and sharing information with other institutions to help manage potential problems and or problem populations. The insight for this book, by the way, comes from the fact, and I know this because I had the opportunity to talk with Richard um, at length about the book and, his, and where his ideas came from and how they were executed. And what he told me was that the, a- the actual idea for this book came from his uh, master's student who's a, who was a police officer talking about the heavy paperwork burden that falls on police officers and how a lot of paperwork has actually nothing to do with what, it's not uh, fit for, for fit for purpose for the police, meaning it's not fit for processing cases through the criminal justice system. It's actually f- creating information to be input into other institutions like insurance companies, f- uh, f- provincial governments, uh, and so on. Insurance, by the way, in, in a later book that Richard did on insurance. Boring. Don't quote me on that. But essentially what he argued was he, he jumped off from the knowledge worker idea into, this, uh, into talking about how, again, from insights from policing research, how a lot of... Um, how uh, the institution of insurance actually governs a lot of activity, not in terms of, well, by governing activity, I mean getting people to manage their own behaviors. So for example, the insurance on your house, you know, somebody comes and does an inspection. You have to tick off all these boxes of repairs and so on to make sure that uh, you're not at increased risk of like break-ins, of floods, I don't know, your roof falling in at the same time. You look at another way that we're governed by insurance such as around crime prevention, if you get an alarm, uh, you might potentially get a discount on your insurance, which by the way, to my insurance company that I told like 10 years ago that I got an alarm, still waiting for that discount. Okay, so and the example that I've got here is I've just, you know, basically given eight million examples, but the the example I have here is police reports on break and enter cases which generate knowledge that is shared with insurance companies who in turn might share knowledge back. Though oftentimes, let's be honest, it tends to be a one-way street. One of the worst examples, and I've talked about this before, is uh, data collection for governments on on, um, like the Ministry of Transport Safety or Traffic or whatever the hell it's called. Uh, Clearly I don't drive. They will ask police services to file these ginormous reports on motor vehicle collisions, including things like how bald were the tires, what were the road conditions, as though the police officer was actually there and is gonna get down on their hands and knees and actually uh, do some sort of a PSI check or whatever. But anyway, they ask for it though. Let's move along from police roles to talk about police, some of the uh, classic research on police citizen encounters. I mentioned working personality. This comes out of the work of a fellow by the name of Jerome Skolnick going back to 1966. Skolnick says due to the nature of their work, police develop a mindset or what he calls a working personality, which is characterized by the following features perceptions of danger, suspicion, and awareness of their own authority or your own authority. The uh, in later work, in about 2008, Skolnick also included skepticism, cynicism, and mistrust of outsiders. And um, I, I, I know some of you will not will be like, um, duh. <laughs> if you're if you work in policing, some of this you're going to be like, um, duh. <laughs> I completely get that, and as criminologists, if, if we have a working personality, we don't have perceptions of danger, we have awareness of our own authority, we have skepticism, well, we should have skepticism, cynicism, and I would argue we also have a little bit of mistrust of outsiders. So in terms of suspicion, what am I talking about? Well, I, this is a quote from Vincent in 1991, and he says, of Police officers, when they are faced with individuals about whom they know very little, they feel themselves to be at a disadvantage. They do not know what to expect, and because of this, they become more wary and suspicious. In order to minimize the uncertainty and to cope with it, the police sharpen their powers of observation. This is done with the intention of categorizing people into groups, thereby making their behavior not only more understandable, but more predictable as well. My favorite, and uh, now that's the end of the quote, my favorite example of this is, uh, well, basically anytime I go out for coffee or for food with a police officer, it is always a fight over who gets the seat with, the, with your back to the wall and facing forward so you can see you know, pretty much everybody else in the restaurant. I, I have PTSD, so I am suspicious and wary and all that stuff and so I like to have my back to the wall I will only give up that seat by the way to a police officer and I almost always say the same thing if any come if anything comes up behind me you better jump over this damn table so understandably and I talk about this in the context of when I teach this in class I talk about suspicion in the context of thinking about When police come into a situation, typically they have very little, there's very little information they share. You might, whatever you get from dispatch and then the observations that you make very quickly once you're there and you've got to start trying to put some sort of, uh, some sort of a narrative or some sort of a story together about who, who these people are and what's actually going on here so that you can sort out how you're going to address it as a consequence of walking into situations in which you don't know what the hell you're walking into, of course, you're going to be more wary and you're going to become more suspicious. The other part of the reason too, that why police officers are suspicious, think about it. If you spent the uh, the bulk of your day being lied to, which is a good chunk of a police officer's job being lied to. No, I didn't do it. No, I didn't see who did it. No, I don't know anything. Oh, what, who me? Of course you're going to become suspicious. The other, by the way, in relation to suspicion, the other uh, research, uh, the other big expert on this, the other person I would recommend that you might consult is a fellow by the name of Donald Black, writing in the late 1960s, in particular Black in 1968, also talks quite a bit about police and suspicion and why, as a profession, police officers have to be suspicious. The big one I always say, in term, when you think about dangerousness in, and suspicion, you have to understand, patrol. Op- uh, as I said, patrol officers in particular, ha- typically have very little information besides the appearance of the individual and of the situation. They might be able to learn more from accounts provided by, say, a driver or a passenger and from documents that are shown to them, such as the driver's license and, of course, whether or not that, those names appear in, a CPIC, in the CPIC system. The, historically, now we're very fortunate in terms of this idea of dangerousness, we are very fortunate, relatively speaking, in Canada that we have lower rates of, of homicides of police officers than in other countries, particularly the United States. That said... It happens, and there have been some very tragic situations. Um, I'm thinking of Mayor Thorpe as 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 one example, and but there, you know, there 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 have been more than more than a few. The reality, though, is the mo- typically uh, it, in the research that we've done here in Canada, where we've looked at where police officers are most vulnerable to to the possibility of homicide. Uh, we found that um, calls in rural and remote areas, and that again is not super surprising. That has to do with uh, many things, including the fact that there's a lack of backup. So you, we have police officers going to volatile situations in rural, remote areas that include things like domestic violence, um, and their nearest backup might be an hour to two hours away, and there's this sort of situation, and it's a terrible situation to to place police in, of wanting to respond to the call, but having orders, and typically in the form of regulations that say, you know, you have to wait for backup, knowing that, you know, in the two hours that you're sitting outside in your car, the, the, um, somebody might be killed, or you rush in and then you might be in peril without any backup. So this is a huge, huge safety issue. Another concept that I want to talk about from the research literature this comes from the work of Sykes and Clark from 1978 is a concept of deference in terms of police citizen relationships uh, in the field. This is how Sykes and Clark put it in the 1970s and I'm going to try to update it a bit. Deference is this idea that you defer to someone because they are an expert or an authority figure. It means that you value them and you give them you accord them a higher status meaning you're more willing to listen to them and to to obey or follow instructions and so on. Sykes and Clark say that police are of higher status than many citizens with whom they interact by virtue of their occupational role and in many instances by virtue of their general socioeconomic condition. This difference in status influences the flow of deference though, so that it is expected that it will be expressed differently downwardly versus upwardly. Officers also believe that they are owed deference because of their symbolic status. The officer generally has greater social value and influence than the citizen. And that symbolic status, this is now me talking, that symbolic status comes from the fact that police officers are not just, they're not there representing themselves. They are there representing an institution that has invested in them the role of enforcing the law. And so there's a moral element to this, which uh, that's gonna have to be a whole other discussion. There's a moral element to policing. And by the way, that moral element also appears in a lot of the classic literature and more uh, contemporaneously in the work of my colleague Steve Herbert at the University of Washington. Um, Sykes and Clark argue that it's because lower status people have less less ability to express deference that they more often end up being officially processed. They also show that uh, the police are reciprocally more disrespectful to young male suspects in order maintenance situations and least likely to be disrespectful during calls for service involving women, senior citizens, and the middle class. Though I would argue the middle class thing is changing. Um, So, what do police want? We're talking about deference. Well, Becker argues that what police want is respect for their authority. And I have a picture up on my screen. You can't see it, but it is Cartman saying, you will respect my authority. And again, that is, first of all, because they want to gain compliance so they can get control over a situation, sort it out but also because, again, this moral element, they are, respect, they are uh, enforcing or trying to enforce the law and have you respect the law. So disrespect for their authority is equal, is equivalent to disrespect for the law. Let's go back to this. Like, we're still following through with this idea of deference and how it relates in police-citizen exchanges. One of my absolute favorite researchers of all time is a fellow by the name of John Van Manen who did ethnographies on policing back in the 1970s, including his famous work, The Asshole. I'm not swearing. This is a term. So Van Manen says, and this, and again, this is him, this is Van Manen doing field research in patrol with police officers, talking about the types of citizens that they, the police feel that they encounter. The first type is suspicious persons. Those whom the police have reason to believe may have committed a serious offense. The second category are assholes. These are people who are not committing a crime, but they do not accept the police definition of the situation. And I'll go into that in a little bit more detail in a second. The third category are the know-nothings. Those who are not either of the first two categories, but are not the police, and therefore, according to the police, cannot know what the police are about. Suspicious persons seems pretty clear-cut here. Oh, great, so now the cats have decided this is a good time to start acting up. It, the dogs were bloody asleep. Come on, you guys. Uh, assholes are, this is the individual that starts to, um, you know, in a, in a situation, you know, starts questioning the police officers' authority, starts to say things like, um, You know, my father knows the chief and you better not do this. And, you know, uh, they're arguing the situation. And, uh, this is something that I always advise people. It's it's good to know your rights. You want to think about how you're asserting them. If you're drunk and beaking off, this is probably not a good way to assert your rights. If you want to call a lawyer, this is not, you, you probably ought not to start with a string of vulgarities, tell the cop that's arresting you, that they know nothing, yada, yada, yada. Um, You still have a right to a lawyer. I'm not disputing that. But I just, I would just, hmm, hang on. Let me think about how I want to phrase this before it, so that the civil liberties people don't start screaming at me. Ah, there we go. I'm off the coffee since it's like 11 o'clock, and I'm stuck with Perrier. It's not nearly as satisfying. Okay, here's the thing, just don't be an asshole. That's my advice. The know nothings, these are the, the famous Monday morning quarterbackers. I see this on social media all the time. People that have something to say. The police could have done this better. The police should have done that. Uh, I, I would have done it this way. And typically the Monday morning quarterbackers are, they have no freaking clue what they're talking about, but they have an opinion man Manon also talks about us versus them. So this is, you know, you hear this thing about the thin blue line and the blue brotherhood and all this stuff, and people really misunderstand what all of that really means, and it's it's very culturally... Uh, you have to think about it in terms of cultural context. I would argue that that's a bit, quite a bit stronger in the U.S. than it is in Canada, um, and I, I would argue that based on the fact that I'm not going to name any particular police services, but there are some very long-standing rivalries between police services where, quite frankly, it doesn't matter if you're a police officer. You work for them, forget about it. So us versus them, it's not so clear-cut and dry. However, let's go back to what Van Manen says. He says, the public responds to the officer not as a civilian, not as a whole person, but in his or her capacity as a police officer. The police officer has to learn, sometimes the hard way, what public expectations are and how to live with the conflict and the stress that arise from the different role expectations of his or her public. Uh, I'm going to stop right there. This is something I see over and over again. Uh, Go back to my situation of going out for coffee or for lunch with with a uniformed police officer. It is, as soon as I walk in, everybody start, they're not, uh, you know, it's nice, it's nice when you walk in there, all the heads turn to look at you. It's very deflating when it turns out they're actually not checking out your great, you know, you've been working on your butt and your butt looks great in those jeans. They're not looking at that. They don't think you're like Gwyneth Paltrow or, or, you know, whoever. They're looking because the person that you're with is wearing a uniform and a police uniform. Police officers have to learn the fact that anytime that they are in uniform and they're visible, they're going to draw, a, people are going to look at them. They're going to draw attention. The thing is, out of uniform in social situations, it's, this, it, it's not that dissimilar in a sense. You might as well just have the damn uniform on because as soon as you tell somebody that you're a police officer, then all sorts of questions, well, so tell me about this case. What do you think about this jury verdict? What do you know about this murder case? What do you know about that? And, or you get to deal with other people's biases about the police. Well, you know, my ticket and blah, 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 blah. Can you imagine? This is the same reason why I don't tell people I'm a criminologist because I don't want to hear it. And I often say to my students when we're in class, like I ask what kind of occupation do you do? And they say, well, I'm a retailer. Or I do this or I do that. And I say, well, how'd you feel if people when, oh, you work at Victoria's Secret? Oh my God, that's the, those are the crappiest clothes. Like, I don't know how you can stand, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you'd want to like, I know violence is not the answer kids, but you'd probably want to punch them. Well, this is not dissimilar from the police experience. Everybody has something to say and they do not re- react to you as another human being. They react to you in terms of your occupational role. In sociology, it's called master status. your master status is not a human being it is a police officer and so as a consequence of that the police uh, police officer because of the nature of their work expects that his or her audience is going to be critical as a result of experience in the field the police officer gradually becomes less interested in what the public thinks of his performance and more about his professional how his professional colleagues or her professional colleagues evaluate his or her work why because they're the ones that understand how the game ought to be played and so as a consequence um, there's a very distinct us and them and In terms of language, how I've seen that translate into is, I remember walking through uh, VPD years and years ago with a, um, he's now retired, a sergeant, and we were going for coffee and somebody called the sergeant into a room to show them some video footage of a a, um, retail uh, theft ring. And before, you know, as as he walked in to this room to take a look at the screen, he said, "Uh, is it okay if a civilian looks? Or if there's a civilian here or something like that. So immediately, three minutes before I'm Laura, we're having a chat, it's all good. Now in this context, I flip, I become a civilian. And then I totally get it. I 100% get it. From a legal standpoint, that completely made sense to me. Um, but it does sort of reinforce that there is a general sort of split between civilians and members, which is the term that's most frequently used in policing. Um, I have included here a comment that I got from an IDAN officer from some of my own research in terms of this us versus them. This is what he had to say. He said, from the personal side, as people get to know me, I will hear later on that whether it be through an association or through a sport, or through other friends, people are very uncomfortable around me at first because they don't know, like, do you have a sense of humor? Because I'm a police officer. People are nervous driving with me because they think, oh, there is a cop in the car. And really in our section, with what we do, you have to have a sense of humor or you would go nuts. And some people might think that we have a very bizarre sense of humor and that we are inappropriate at times, but sometimes when we are dealing with what we deal with, you really have to take a little bit of a break and then talk about it among those with whom you can because it's not something that you can go home and talk to a friend or family member about what you've seen. He said, so there is that family in the office with whom you share and with who you can be yourself. But then there's also that as your circle grows larger, then people might have a chance to see the lighter side and the person behind the uniform. And I think that's really important. And I've had uh, one of my favorite interviewees was a homicide detective, uh, years ago who talked about going to, was at a cocktail event, was having a conversation about uh, books and, and, uh, you know, philosophy and so on with this fellow who was a lawyer. And the conversation was really, he was really enjoying the conversation until the lawyer asked him what he did. And he told him, I'm a police officer. And the lawyer was basically like, wow, kind of like, wow, you're, you're, you're kind of, wow, you know that stuff and you're a cop? Wow. Which was highly insulting and offensive and another a stupid stereotype. But again, people approached the role, the occupational role, with a lot of stereotypes. And on that note, we managed to actually get through everything without a major dog meltdown. So there you go. From now on, I can only tape at 11 o'clock at night. Thanks guys. I'll talk to you soon.